Hello and welcome to the Down to Earth podcast. My name is Danielle and I'm joined in this venture by friends Marie, Chris, and Anne Lorne. We're four students at Imperial College's Business School studying for our Master's in Climate Change, Management, and Finance. Join us in this episode as we talk about payment for environmental services and ecotourism in Costa Rica. Enjoy! Before we begin, I'd just like to give a brief editor's note. Much like the rest of the world, we also are all working from home. So please excuse any noticeable changes in or differences in voice quality throughout the episode. Thank you and enjoy. So first of all, I want to give a shout to the two students I wrote this paper with at McGill. Uh, so Hugo Garcia and Madeleine Hittel. Uh, we were doing a class on um, governance, like business and governance, and kind of the interactions that existed between the two. And this was our final project for it. Uh, it was really, really cool to work on it. And the paper we wrote had a bit more of an angle on like what is wrong with program what could be improved potentially so I, this is i'm just going to introduce kind of what the program is about and why it was created and how it falls a bit more into the broader context of costa rica and then if we do end up talking about that I'll, i can share a bit of what the paper was about so in the 1980s there were rising concerns in costa rica because there was severe deforestation happening and they were losing their forest to the super fast rate. And Costa Rica holds currently 5% of the world's biodiversity, which means it's really, really rich in animals and biodiversity. And it is one of those natural resources that are really, really precious. Um, so in 1997, the government decided to create the Payments for Environmental Services program to combat that. And it's been really successful. So what are the environmental services that forests provide? There's four main ones. The very obvious uh, carbon sequestration. There's also hydrological services and biodiversity. And the government added scenic beauty as a service in their definition. And so concretely, people that do receive money for, from the program can do so because they do four different actions. They can either reforest their land or let it naturally regenerate. Um, they can also simply protect the forest that exists on their land or perform agroforestry. So in practice, there's two main business models that emerge as a result, ecotourism and agroforestry. And so the paper that we wrote was very specifically on ecotourism because it is closely linked to the program, the development of ecotourism. And agroforestry hasn't picked up as much from what I know. Um, so what's interesting about the program is that the funding partly comes from Costa Rica's 15% tax on fossil fuels, which means that it's very logical in a way because the people that do the damage on the environment pay the people that protect and regenerate it. So in the broader sense, the program uh, supports Costa Rica's plan for carbon neutrality by 2050. Uh, in particular, it supports one of their pillars, which is to consolidate a management model in rural, urban, and coastal territories, focusing on protecting biodiversity and increasing and maintaining forest cover. There's another potential synergy that hasn't been realized yet, but that might be possible with sustainable agriculture. So Costa Rica currently has one of the highest rates of pesticides used in the world. And with the right incentives, um, the PES program might be able to help with that by developing agroforestry and other form of regenerative, regenerative agriculture further. So Costa Rica's program is widely recognized as a best-in-class model. There's a bunch of countries trying to do this game currently. One of those is Peru, which I can talk a bit about potentially at some point. Mm. Um, and so notably, Costa Rica's program has received the 2020 United Nations Awards for Global Climate Action in the category financing climate-friendly investments. Uh, and so, so far, the program has financed over $524 million in projects 
that have impacted over 18,000 families and 1.3 million hectares of land. So it's been really, really good for the country, really impactful. Uh, and there are some issues with it that we might discuss at some point. Any thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting paper and um, honestly, yeah, I haven't heard about it until like you kind of read what you worked on. And when I kind of looked more details on it, as you said, it was setting the benchmark and the example for other countries to follow. I guess in terms of environmental performance, that, that had like a huge impact, such as reversing deforestation, which is really hard. Um, I think for middle, upper middle countries or developing countries in general, so I thought it was very interesting where, like, in terms of environmental benefits, there's been a lot of progress, mm -hmm. but I think also related to the limitations that you identified on the paper, it's more the relationship with the small landowners and the, like, more kind of the, the people that were excluded from the discussion, which were giving more the impact mm -hmm. of land degradation or potential climate damages. And um, even though I feel like those environmental benefits are are super important, it feels like it mostly benefited the people that had access to it, the people that could benefit it. So there's still like a monetary aspect to it. And it seems like people that do still feel the strong damages of environmental degradation were not necessarily put forward into the the discussion, there's just like in the background. But when it comes to tourism, it feels like they've been a bit forgotten where there seems to where there seem to be a, a huge part of the story. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean I will say like what you said is absolutely true. But the paper that we wrote really focused on what was wrong. And, and I don't think it's true necessarily to say that, you know, small landowners and indigenous communities did not see any benefits from it. It's more that they did not see the maximum amount of benefit that they could have from it because there's a few flaws with it. Mm -hmm. So overall, you know, like the program is still really, really good. It's just that there is a couple things that could have been done better, including what you really very pointly, sorry, very rightly pointed out, uh, having those stakeholders be much more included in the conversations with the government and the planning and decision making. Yeah, for, um, for me as well, so I haven't um, kind of known about this before as well, and ecotourism isn't something that I'm kind of quite familiar with. But what I think is actually quite interesting about this project, because obviously we are trying to give like a positive spin on everything, is that even though like the paper does highlight, I guess, kind of maybe what's gone wrong or what can be improved, it's kind of because it was done kind of like earlier on. Um, like the, it was discovered like in the 1980s that mm. something needs to be done. It's actually kind of like a very constructive example of like how to try things and actually take action and then learn from it. Because I think this can kind of now be been used as like an example for the world of like how do you actually go about it and how do you make sure that all the, the stakeholders involved are actually benefiting. Because um, I saw that you kind of mentioned one of the solutions is kind of like a, a two-tier system of um, I think working with NGOs, for example. Um, and I thought it was quite, quite interesting because it's almost like we can have these wonderful ideas of ecotourism and things of like how to solve a problem, but there'll also be, there'll still be challenges to overcome in the solution that you're providing. And I think it's just kind of a very realistic way of looking at how to tackle climate change. Um, so it's kind of like another perspective that I think we need to remember. But then from my side as well, what I was kind of wondering is like for ecotourism to be a success, does it need to be that what you're doing with ecotourism is more economically beneficial than mm. like if you were farming before? So I'm not entirely sure. I think if like for a government to, to be able to incentivize the population to switch, you do need, I think, some kind of incentives. So when I mentioned Peru earlier, I, as you guys know, I worked in Peru for three months in a consulting project. Um, and one of the things I did while I was there is visit um, community in the Amazonian rainforest mm. that has switched actually from farming, uh, like unsustainable modes of farming that were really, really destructive for the environment to ecotourism because the Peruvian government had put a similar system in place. And when they were sharing it with us, they said that what was really important in making them switch was 
to have a monetary incentive that was, you know, that to have a proof that this was, you know, good enough. And in particular, to have um, support, economic support when building the infrastructure that they would need to run that project, yeah. even if that meant paying it back later on or whatever. And then to have continued government support and presence to help them overcome challenges, including this sort of like community challenge of people, not everyone was in agreement with going forward with this. And so having a third party there to incentivize that was really, really impactful from what they said. Um, yeah, because what I find quite interesting was, and this was mentioned that I think 3.5% of kind of the, the tax from like fossil fuel companies is kind of used for the ecotourism. But it, so the, the first thing I thought was, okay, well, it's actually quite reliant on like the fossil fuel industry almost to like have success. But then it also made me just kind of think um, that when you have kind of like, just as a hypothetical example here, but like BP, who are kind of now going to more like an energy company, not an oil company, they're trying to revamp their, their business, is that with this idea of almost like paying like this ecotourism tax, like there's actually a difference because in the one example, you have BP just benefiting themselves, trying to improve their own business model for their benefit. But if you have like this ecotourism tax, for example, BP is having to change its business model, but at the same time, it's allowing other actors or stakeholders in the community to also benefit and help the environment now. Instead of having to wait for BP's business operations to catch up, other people can start doing things to benefit the environment. That's a really great yeah. point. That's really mm -hmm. good. Yeah, I quite like that. It's true, though, your point of like, to an extent, if the funding for this program which ha will have to continue if the program to be successful, right? Depends on fossil fuel when you start to decrease fossil fuels, which is part of their plan, actually, in their carbon neutrality plan, they want to reduce these fossil fuels, unsurprisingly so. Then they'll have to start thinking about where does the money come from? And they already have uh, problems with funding, even with that tax revenue. So it's a bit of a challenge they'll have to address for sure. I, th I think the, the answer almost or the hope comes from the fact that there's almost like this initial threshold that you have to get over that you hope that if you can push the ecotourism to a level that it can be self-sustained without the fossil fuel money. But again, that also just comes from like taking the risk and seeing if it actually works in practice. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts, guys? I had a few thoughts, but I feel like they're a little too scattered to um, figure out exactly how to share them. But... One of the things I was thinking um, goes back to Anne Lore's point, and there were two points in the paper where it kind of point at, pointed out how even though um, even though governments are willing to take on this initiative, sometimes they can be inadequately prepared, either with resources or through employee training. Um, so even if you get on board, it's kind of a question of how do you actually ensure success in these cases even to a limited degree, because this is obviously success to a limited degree if some people are feeling disadvantaged by these initiatives. And going back to this idea of being inadequately prepared, it seems like they still are lacking in knowledge. They have a limited knowledge base. And I think it shows that need for the synthesis between having more highly trained technical academic knowledge as well as interests in mind, as well as having that indigenous and local community perspective and knowledge about the land and its management as well. Um, and as I was reading on in the paper, another question or idea that really came up was this idea of how do we actually make sustainable initiatives lead to sustainable benefits or profits for everyone? Obviously, big question to answer. I don't expect us to get that deep of uh, that one right now. But even just thinking about that question led me to the idea, which I am fairly sure you'll agree with, that you don't need continual growth to have continual health or sustainability. Uh, and I think that that's just really important, even if it seems a little bit obvious, um, just because of the way that economics is currently uh, very much about growth, growth, growth. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about kind of making it sustainable and kind of linking it to the health that you mentioned, I think the, the key thing can come to, I literally don't know anything about this, but kind of like natural capital, mm. where I assume that if you can develop natural assets and if you can use it as maybe like 
let's say you build a forest and it's kind of capturing loads of carbon, if in some way you can link that to the market or credits in the future to then help other countries that are struggling to decarbonize to sell them your credits? Because I think you were saying that um, Costa Rica are doing the, this right now, but it's yeah, kind of getting that to a, or getting the market to a level where it's kind of like seen as like a, a, a tradable asset, really. How, what do we exactly do we mean by an asset? Like, how are we defining that, especially when it comes to nature? I feel like that's a huge thing to tackle as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, in my in my head, it was just thinking about it as like a way you can put uh, a monetary value to it, um, and whether that comes from like the amount of carbon that it captures, for example. That's kind of like what what I was getting at. Um, mm. Just this idea of like being able to add. Well, I, I just think it's the, the way we kind of naturally work is we kind of protect things that have value to us in like economics. Sure, sure. So if we if we if we can get the the natural um, or nature based solutions to actually have monetary value to us, I think it will just make it very more almost like more marketable to businesses to actually go out and protect it. Um, if it makes sense. Um, yeah. I think yeah. it's. Uh, I just briefly wanted to say, I think it's interesting, this idea of um, natural solution versus natural capital. I feel like that's something worth exploring because I think that those two are, that it's, it, it's naturally intertwined, but I'm not sure that it should be. And so it would be interesting just to think about how we would maybe in a later episode really get into that and define the boundaries between the two. Nice, interesting. Yeah, because I think almost some of it can um, be semantic sometimes, where it just really comes down to like how how we word it or how we think about it. Um, but but yeah, I think I think maybe kind of climate change sometimes struggles with like a branding or marketing issue, mm. where you're either kind of shouting for it's the end of the world, you need to do something, or you're kind of almost you love nature and you like you kind of don't know how to go about saving it if, if that makes sense. I mean, it's like a massive generalization. Um, but but I think like linking it back to the paper though, like when you talk about the small landholders and indigenous kind of communities, I, I think maybe the issue there for them is also like knowing that the opportunity actually exists. Because I think like when you run these programs, the people that will actually know how to exploit it will be the big firms who have the the people looking out for how to actually get a financial benefit. Where if you're a small landholder, you might hear your friend talk about it, he's maybe heard about it, but you might not understand how does the program actually operate. How do you actually ensure that it's long-term success? Um, because it, it might sound good as well, but then you think, well, I've got my, my family to look after and this kind of thing. I don't want to try any anything new that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like brings back to like a part of like the education in the community as well. Like what you said, Danielle, about having the, the people that have the expertise and almost like the education to, to kind of um, share the knowledge. Yeah, and I think that that's why definitions aren't just semantics it's very important because these can be used as barriers for people who don't necessarily have all the means to figure it out by themselves but if they know very clearly what something is that what they have is a natural asset they can go and actually make the best out of what they have um so yeah Mm -hmm. i don't know i think that that's very that's very important to be aware of yeah and i think what is interesting about this discussion is um adding to your point danielle but also Jumping back to what Chris mentioned about the whole like fossil fuel revenue financing mm-hmm. project, I think like the vision of na- of nature being an asset is kind of different from both perspectives. From the perspective of the fossil fuel industry financing this project, and also from the perspective of small land owners. Yes. So I think, um, having like this really cool kind of framework that is existing in Costa Rica, which is really rare, where you have NGOs involved. A government-focused kind of approach with also some collaboration from extractive industries and to some extent some landowners. I think that could help um, create kind of a common definition, a tailored definition to what natural assets means in that context. I guess for the context of tourism and creating ecotourism, it's more about the longevity of the natural of the natural landscape in general. Mm. But in for landowners, it's more about how much can they can they thrive from it in terms of livelihoods, in terms of health and all that. So I feel like bringing all those actors together would help um, communication on both sides, which tend to be kind of opposed to each other, but also um, linking it as well to kind of ESG metrics and all that, where we lack 
some information on how local communities are really impacted by damages caused by fossil fuel industries. I think this type of framework that we have really helps fossil fuel industries being more um, attentive and understanding more what could happen on the local community level and it could help like more of a, of a formal communication on both sides and hopefully kind of a, a better quality data when it comes to fossil fuel industries or mining industries kind of reporting the impacts that they have on local communities. So I think it's a great portal for better communication on both sides. It's a really good point. I actually quite like the idea that it's, it's definitely, definitely super true. Um, I had a thought that crossed my mind that's like slightly different, but because you, Chris, you were mentioning, you know, how if you can make a nature become an asset, a financial asset and link it to the market, then you, you don't really need like extra sources of funding necessarily. And so we already know that there, you know, there's like carbon credits being created in countries like such as Brazil and being sold somewhere else. And I actually don't know if Costa Rica is using their program to sell carbon credits as a source of revenue for it. Because that might also like carbon credits are going to become more and more expensive as time comes, which means that they're going to be able to fund more and more actors of land with it. It's just really interesting, I think. Like, I, I don't know why we didn't look into that when we did the research. I might have just self-inserted this, like, yeah. But I'm pretty sure you did, at least, like, in one line, mention that idea of them selling their carbon credits. Like, just even in one line. Otherwise, it just was a great shared idea that came into my head as well while I was reading it. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure I got it from the paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I can't I can't remember what the, what the exact line was, but I feel like it was kind of either saying it was like at early stages or they were were trying it out. Um, but I think like from the like the discussions that we've had right now, it, it seems like with the ecotourism and with what's happening with Rica, it's like the cogs are turning, but it's like still figuring out and like the teething problems of like what works, what doesn't work. Because like from a lot of it, it seems like it's working, but it's like the little things like transaction costs. Yeah. Um, for like the small landholders and, and that kind of thing that's holding it back and I, I think the other thing that kind of stood out to me which I thought was quite interesting or which is a slight problem but also something to learn from the experience is that this this project for the ecotourism has actually seems to have a lot of economic benefit for I think they call the auxiliary kind of sectors and other jobs being created yes. around the ecotourism but mm -hmm. I feel like what could actually happen sometimes is you almost lose sense of like what is the the end goal with with what you're trying to achieve here because mm. you could arguably have like an, a net effect on the environment but you could economically be doing better and it's kind of understanding like what is your, your goals you want to achieve as a country or as a community here um, because with the Costa Rica one for me when I read it it kind of seemed like they were more arguing to make it economical but instead if they like with the question for me that kept standing was like okay it might be economically working now but what's the impact on the environment? Because I think yes. that's still quite hard to measure in a way. Yeah, so there was this really, really interesting paper. Um, I don't quite remember the name because this was two years ago now. Or one year ago? I don't know. <laughs> a while ago. Uh, COVID time war. But there was this really interesting paper that was trying to very specifically look at regions and examples where ecotourism resorts were being created and calculate what was the net benefit economically socially and environmentally mm. and it was interesting to see that there was a really really strong link between proper governance and proper inclusion of local communities and the best environmental and social outcomes for the people so socially you, you would kind of assume right but environmental i thought was interesting and it also led to generally better economic outcome and less friction with policymakers as well and within the community so i mean if you guys are interested i can find that paper again and send it to you hopefully. yeah i would love that that's yeah, obviously super interesting yeah and so it was interesting because the, the outcomes were really varied overall right so mm -hmm. sometimes you'd have really good environmental outcomes but the economic outcomes wouldn't be as great and other times you'd have 
really great economic outcomes, but the net impact on social and environmental factors were, was like neutral or negative. Overall, I think the program is still deemed to be better for the environment. Okay. And there was less certainty about positive outcomes for the local populations, which is also partly why we focused on that issue more in our paper. That is a good point that something that even if it's very environmentally beneficial doesn't necessarily benefit local populations and even indigenous communities that might live there and benefit from local resources. Yeah, I kind of feel like that that leads back to like the core, what becomes the core of our discussion, like what do we mean by natural capital and what do we mean by natural assets? Because it yeah. seems like it's just going to mean so many different things for different people and kind of shape the outcome. So when we're talking about good, good progress, uh, when we're thinking about what it means for the environment, what it means for local communities, do you guys think that there's a framework that could possibly lead to a convergence of those goals and kind of increase the trust between different actors, including the environment being one? Sure, it's physics. I feel like, I genuinely feel like this really is a um, almost like a, well, it's going to definitely start off as a qualitative physics problem, I want to say, because when you're learning physics at different levels, um, even the most basic terms have a different definition at each level, um, at each type of system level that you're studying it, at each academic level that you're studying it, and as you grow in complexity, so does your definition to begin to include more terms as you learn to handle it. I wanted to go back to Chris's point earlier. I can't exactly remember his wording, but just some, one of the things he had said made me, uh, especially, yeah, I think it was related to the cogs. Like you're almost seeing like this simple model. You're seeing where the cogs are squeaking, adding oil here and there. How do you make it more robust? That definitely is a physics type of problem where it's just like you start off with a really simple model, you're really thrilled that it works on some levels, and then you start analyzing where are the problems coming in. Okay, what other variables do I need to add in to begin to account for those things that I didn't realize needed to be accounted for before? You see how the system runs with an updated model, you add more oil in, you see if it runs more smoothly. What, well, you know, what's still failing now? It goes back to that attitude, I think, of if we want to treat finance and economics as a pure science, we have to treat it as something that's not about fact or convenience, but something that's about observation and model refinement. I think physics has that sort of mindset, especially, where it's all about starting off with something even like this, which is arguably, I think, since it's coming out of nowhere, pretty complex. I think that it's still the simplest mode and now we keep going, adding on more, building on more after careful observation. We don't accept it as the best now, like just because it's better than everything else going on. So like the key takeaway from like the, the physics approach would be to kind of take the time to observe how what is happening right now in Costa Rica evolves and being really attentive to what's at stake for different actors. That's... Do I get it right? That's definitely one key takeaway. I think another key takeaway is this idea of having different definitions at different levels, which is something that you had hinted at before. Um, this idea of how natural capital will mean something different to an oil and gas company versus a small stakeholder, a small landowner. Um, I think that it's important that we have really clear communication channels between these different actors because there might not be one central definition that we can all agree upon, but there can be one that makes sense in the specific context. And that's again very physics-like because at each level of the system, there's a different equation that represents, you know, that is that works in that type of system. As you expand the system, oh, that little model might need some refinement for that variable, and so on and so on. As you build up more and more, sometimes even as you scale down more and more. That's interesting. That's super interesting. I think I'm linking it to Chris's point about beyond economic value, how do we how do we kind of define the value of nature yeah. um, in this specific project? And it seems like the way the way that nature has been defined in the ecotourism project, it's been more like the economic aspect. So my question is, is there a place um, in general for any alternative that would be inspired by this where 
we could see nature beyond its economic benefits? Would that do you think what do you guys think about the potential of non-economic perspective on nature gathering people together? Or do you think that's kind of like just a unicorn word? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think if I'm understanding it correctly, it's kind of so having just like nature there and just admiring for the beauty that it is and not having to kind of focus on the fact that there's actual economic value. Yeah. I think the, the reason almost that I'd kind of motivate the the financial side of it is not because um, I, I want there to be a financial argument per se, but more because of like, we have a deadline in essence of 2050, right? Mm. So it's like, how do you motivate everyone and as many people as you can quickly enough to, to act on it? And just from, I guess, what I, I can, what I feel or what I understand is I think that's almost just the biggest way to, to get things done. And mm-hmm. that's kind of my, my personal view. I think it goes back to that discussion that we had in the introductory episode about how you guys were looking at emotion. Uh, emotion meaning this higher moral purpose that people might have versus rationality, which a lot of times is viewed in an economic sense. Um, I thought that w- that's really interesting that you bring up that point because um, I was looking at this definition in the paper about ecotourism where it talks about how it's this nature-based form of tourism that seeks to provide tangible benefits for both the environment and communities. And I always kind of wondered, reading definitions like that, how far do you actually need to go in terms of marketing these sorts of benefits? Because to me, I, I don't know that that's necessarily emotion as a higher moral purpose like I don't think it's appealing to people in a moral sense maybe more in a pleasure sense but um it just makes me think about that point that Anne Lore brought up as well in that first introductory episode about how you began to I don't want to I forgive the phrasing of this but it's kind of how you began to see environmental issues as being very important once it became more human-centric so I'm still kind of hung up because I, the optimist in me really wants to believe that people can find those non-economic benefits. But I'm still struggling on the wording of what exactly are those? How do you market those as well? And it's, those are really good points. It's interesting that you brought up that point because I had a, a whole debate with a friend of mine on whether or not we should be putting a price on nature and natural resources. Um, and he was very, very firm in his belief that nature does not have a value because if you did put a price on nature, it would be an actual price that would present its value. It would essentially be infinite or so high that compared to our economic system, we could not afford the cost of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very, it's a, it's a good point. You know, it's not wrong. It brings constant benefits so if you do use like financial modeling technically the value would be huge of it unless you discount it and then there's the whole question of discounting and then at the on the other hand it's it's kind of idealistic because it does not it's not feasible and at the urgency at the level of urgency that we have you cannot not have these economic incentives because, because there are a lot of players that are short-term oriented that will not think of what happens to my children, grandchildren, to my you know descendants, to nature, maybe they're not connected with it. And then for them, it's really, really hard to see the value in it. And I think this is where the very rational side of the conversation begins, which is maybe it's not right to put a price on nature, but at this point, it's necessary. I don't know if you guys agree. I think it depends yeah, no. on what um, what nature we're talking about putting a price on. I almost wonder if we have a flawed perspective that we need to be putting a price on forests, you know, glaciers, things that are um, the more beneficial aspects of nature. Maybe we should be putting some some prices on the bad effects that come with not protecting them rather than trying to value that physical resource itself. What do you guys think? I think this discussion is actually getting quite fascinating. Like, there's like so many points I want to pick out and, and talk about. Um, like, uh, I, I literally just had a point as well. Like, oh, the point I'm I made so before, sorry. Daniel, what was it? About like, um, 
I think you were talking about kind of how the environment and the community, like you kind of talk more like the negative side where I wasn't quite expecting that, but kind of lost my point now. But what I think I was trying to say was like, that I don't think the idea of um, like the economics and finance and like the, the, the nature part of it is necessarily like mutually exclusive per se, in a sense that I think I'm struggling to find like a perfect analogy for it. But I think sometimes you can have the right idea or want to do the right thing, but it's just not the right time. And the way I would almost describe it is for now in our current state, you need to focus on the economics and just, again, go back to getting the wheels and the cogs turning. But hopefully in 50 years or 100 years time, we society can get to a stage where it shifts away from having to motivate itself internally by saying the economics justify it. And you can just say that nature itself justifies it. Um, and then this kind of links into the point you're making about kind of glaciers and, and that kind of thing, where in our lecture today about litigation and stuff like we've been talking about kind of like the positive side of like valuing the asset but we can also think of like now if you have a value to the asset and if you can prove legally there's contribution from a fossil fuel firm for destroying the asset you can then also put a negative penalty on them for example to pay um so yeah kind of kind of lost my point a little bit but um but yeah i, I think fascinating I had so many going at one point, I just lost it. I know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I was like, just, I have to speak or I'm going to lose everything that's in my brain right now. So, <laughs> Just honestly like, jump back in at some point, to, yeah. like, whenever it comes back, you know? Yeah. Um, to your point, though, I think, I think you're very right in saying that we don't just need to value what in financial terms would be the upside. So the positive, you also need to value the negative. Mm -hmm. But if you look at financial decision makings and what's been happening in the space, which I think is really interesting, okay. there's this uh, French company called Natixis, which just implemented this bonus malus system of um, essentially when, and, and to do that, they have to kind of value it, right? The upside, the downside of investing in a company, environmentally and socially speaking. And, and they, they need to value both sides essentially and i think that that's kind of interesting because you're not just putting a negative value on those companies that aren't doing well for the environment but you're also rewarding those that are taking steps in the right direction and i don't think you can do that necessarily without valuing what the positive side of it is but i'm not sure yeah and i think one thing that was really interesting about what you said mary about your discussion with your friends and like more your perspective on it about the urgency and also like rewarding companies that do good and kind of punishing in a way the companies that do bad is that maybe it's a maybe it's a sad realization but it feels like the only place where we can actually work all together it's, it's based on like monetary incentive and i don't know maybe it's just like the the emotional person that i am where i feel like that mm. that's a real that's a real sad but I do understand that that's a reality, and I think that even sustainability becoming a monetary issue now is the reason why corporations started caring. That's the reason why we kind of got out of corporate, de corporate denial and have some more actors on, them, on the field where we started talking about divestment, uh, all that. I feel like that's where people started acting on it. So, yeah, I mean, that's obviously like a point where we made some progress, but I really would like to... I don't know, explore some other facets of our humanity to kind of trust each other better on the sustainability issue. Because I think the money aspect is, is kind of like a short-term vision. That's how I see it. Like when investment, yeah. an investor yeah. is interested in nature, they're interested in cash flows. They're interested in that present value. And I think that's, that's a discussion that, um, that I had with Daniel before, but like there's a lot that we have to redefine in I feel like it does not take into account this whole like negative negative cost of nature, positive aspects of nature into the into the pricing or investment mm -hmm. process. So I think that could definitely be like something to explore. What what are we capable to do as humans beyond money? Uh, I was I was just gonna say it's like in the so from our economics course we kind of got to where like the traditional way of thinking about economics is like kind of we it's about scarce resources and using up resources but then obviously in the last 10 20 years we've kind of realized again actually we're we're in operating within this environmental space and i think what 
we have to realize or just kind of remind ourselves of like this is a massive problem and for everything we kind of know as now if we take like economics as a subject as an example for like a hundred years it's been operating in a certain way but we're now getting to a point where we can't just tweak it a little bit we almost have to like fundamentally change the way we think about it mm. saying like actually the way we operate is within the environment so we can't destroy the environment anymore i think the point i'm just trying to make is like we almost have to like not be easy on ourselves but just also think like there's a lot to figure out um because like in the costa rica thing there were teething problems but there'll still be like system teething problems as well mm. um where like again like the finance the financial way about thinking about it isn't isn't perfect as well but it's also finding a way because another thing i was going to say is like what's quite confusing about esg sometimes is that a lot of the times it's actually described as non-financial risk mm-hmm. because the way you have to think about it is like initially esg doesn't like nothing was necessarily priced in that sense so the way to think about it is like company a uh, has non-financial risk because esg is telling it that in the future there will be floods there will be fires um, and that's that will be risk in the future that you want to avoid so you have to act now for the benefit of mm. the environment or the climate to avoid that risk um so, so it's kind of fascinating i think there's there's a lot of ways to go about it but yeah it's it's figuring out like figuring out which way is the best which way i'm i'm sure as well for certain countries different ways will work and some ways won't i was going to say um earlier and i think that this is a really good segue um this idea of valuing nature i think so often we think that it needs this means that we need to have a concrete value we understand that value can change in finance and in economics but somehow i think when we have this discussion it's almost like we're saying that tree is worth 100 million dollars it's never going to be worth that much but you know what i mean um and i think instead um related to another discussion that i had with ann lor as well as ann lor's points here um it's almost about maybe if we're thinking about even if we're even if we're doing something we're we're doing more than we've done in the past to account for it we still want to go from like something like csr to actual proper manifested sustainability and one way of doing that is by looking at these little case studies and instead of thinking oh we need some sort of di- uh discrete variable maybe this needs to be a continu uh a continuous variable instead something that can have a different value for a different community um a different region maybe it's valued by it's looking at the actual size of the community the population it's valuing um how much more they would benefit if they allowed more space to have more natural resources um we need to be thinking in terms like that to be a little more holistic just because we need to act now doesn't mean we need to rush to assign a variable because i think that even even with the best of intentions even when we understand that this is only you know this is only a simple working model because we need something rather than nothing sometimes we get so caught up especially from what i'm seeing in finance in this convenience oh it's convenient for me to adopt this and now it would be inconvenient to change all my models later um to a better model even if it's proven better i think we need to do our best now to understand that there's going to be multiple factors at play that we'll have to account for in the future this is best modeled by some sort of continuous variable and we need to we're going to have to keep adjusting what terms fit into that continuous variable yeah i fully agree with that mm-hmm. no i agree i agree this is this is just very interesting like same as Chris, I have so many thoughts to go into my head. I I cannot bring them. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like uh, to kind of bring it back to the paper. Um, actually, uh, more questions for you, Mary. Maybe I missed it in the paper, but um, was the definition around ecotourism mostly focused around the nature, or also the cultural aspect of Costa Rica? So, the definition as. Uh, as me- i mean they, they, daniel mentioned it earlier but mm-hmm. it's a nature based form of tourism sorry uh, did you want the definition of ecotourism or yeah uh, yeah oh, yeah sorry mm-hmm. um so it's nature based form of tourism seeking to provide tangible benefits for both the environment and host communities mm-hmm. so you do have that social dimension in it and mm-hmm. then the goal of it is uh, to conserve and protect forested land enabling land owners to generate continuous income by offering scenic beauty for recreation. Mm. And that scenic beauty aspect is just mostly like 
um, about the landscape itself or also like indigenous communities living in those um, in those areas or kind of bringing also some some cultural heritage in the discussion how how is it integrated so in the definition I don't I do not know in practice mm -hmm. from what I had read I don't know if it's changed since uh, because my sources were like you didn't have as many like really really recent sources from like 2018 onwards mm -hmm. um but i think indigenous communities in general weren't super well included in the program mm -hmm. uh and indigenous knowledge either mm -hmm. it costa rica has a wide range of indigenous populations they, they really do have a lot um, some of which are more or less integrated into society, speaking their their own language or not, mm -hmm. having their own culture very defined. And there's a bit of a problem of indigenous cultures disappearing, at least a lot of the smaller ones. And from what I know, they were part of those landowners that were having difficulties accessing the program because of those transaction costs. And because of the heavy path dependency of a program, et cetera, et cetera. So all those things that I, so I don't think that that's something that's very well addressed in the program, but I could be wrong. Um, based on what I've seen in a lot of, um, how do I word this? So coming into this program, I had done some sustainability right. projects before. And usually whenever I have seen this more social aspect of seeing sustainability or the environment as having social benefits, it's rarely, if ever, included that cultural heritage or indigenous aspect into it. Um, the vibe that I got just from reading this paper was that it was much the same as well, like scenic beauty had less to do with a cultural um, aspect and was much more focused on, oh look, the sunset's really beautiful today. Um, things like that, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. That's interesting because I feel like kind of jumping on the, the kind of like uh, interesting initiatives that we had to value nature. I feel like one way to go about it will be like to sensitize our different relationship, re relationships to nature. For example, e ecotourism is a great way to protect biodiversity. I feel like with kind of the fossil fuel industry wanting to regenerate resources. That's their, that's their main motive. Trying to explore different narratives around nature and different mm. relationships could help a better understanding of how how to, again, like price nature. Because I feel like that's going to be a non-green debate, such a long debate as we go about the whole like, mm, like net zero journey or anything like that. Most wicked and natural, natural capital solutions. But yeah, I feel like culture plays such a huge part, and I feel like we're like we we're only including humans where damages are at stake. But mm. when it comes to what can we positively bring to it, I feel like I feel like that's not explored enough. That's what, yeah. I was gonna say I think it would be really interesting to keep that as an overarching question or goal that we want to reach that we want to try and answer not only how does that sort of thing get incorporated but um maybe if we study these at different levels we study it from different angles and different perspectives like if our next paper is more based on nature na you know nature-based solutions or natural capital from the perspective of an oil company um i think that we might be able to at least figure out what is each actor in this game view? Um, how do they define these terms to them? And then that can be, we can begin to sort of disseminate all of this knowledge and make things a little clearer to be able to come to a better consensus on what a definition might be, what a more holistic or um, uh, encompassing, all encompassing definition might be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've got like ideas going everywhere right now. Because um, <laughs> I was like wondering, like we were talking about the kind of relying on people's humanity almost to, to do the right thing. And I was just kind of like wondering, because uh, what is the state of almost like education right now? And, like this is like, how do people learn about climate change? Because do you just learn in high school now like the science of it, but not necessarily like the actual, I guess, the societal um, extremes or, or impacts that, that can occur? Because I feel like, when I learned about it, like 
grade primary school, high school, it was almost like you, you learn the science or, and then that that's kind of it. But I think like if you truly comprehend what the impacts will be of climate change, surely you you have to like, I don't know, I feel like you, you have to be able to act on it. I, I don't know how you kind of ignore it. It's, and I feel like as adults, if you get to the stage of like adulthood, then yeah, you, you might be this, get into this stubborn mindset where it doesn't doesn't quite matter in, in some way. But I think if you, if, if through educational sense, if it's driven into you from like a young age, um, I think it kind of prepares you for the new, the new future that's ahead. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the countries, but at yeah. least like from what I know in France, they're, so you have like those in part of your science classes, you'll learn about, you know, the carbon cycle or, you know, how greenhouse gases work and why they warm the atmosphere. But you don't really learn about exactly as you said, what that means the fact that it is due to humans and not just, you know, random due to cycles of that the earth goes through. And and you don't have a class that's dedicated to it, which I always thought was surprising because, you know, at this point, we're at the point where we want the young generation to be educated about it so that they can influence the older generation and also just generally vote differently. Mm-hmm. But it, they haven't... And, and the French education system just got reformed and they haven't changed that necessarily, which I don't know. But I know like um, higher institutions that provide higher education are thinking of making that mandatory in their program. So I know Cambridge, for example, is thinking about that. Yeah, because that was kind of my thinking. It's because I almost feel like it's almost like a, when you read a news article and it's got a paywall. Is I feel like with education, we're getting to a stage that... Oh to care about climate change you almost have to do a master's where or to truly understand it you have to do a master's where surely if you drip feed the knowledge from from primary school all the way to high school at least um, there should be a better all-rounded understanding of what actually does climate change mean instead of just maybe the hard science um, actually how this will because I think a lot of the problem comes with people think that okay let okay think about climate change is you have to go and do a job in climate change per se but the thing is, climate change is a problem that affects everyone in everything they do. And it's understanding kind of like how from your role in society can you play a positive role mm. or bring a positive benefit. Um, and I think that that's kind of the interesting thing where because I, I think that changes the whole the whole um, dynamic from a community or, or nation perspective is where when everyone realizes, actually, we've got kind of like um, like we've got a bet on this game, if that, if that makes sense. Um, where we're not just sitting on the sideline as, as we thought. Yeah. But then comes the question of, do you have enough people that are educated enough about climate change to have enough teachers? That's a really that? great point. It's, 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 it's a catch-22. I was going to say, um, in my at least in my educational experience in science, like I went to a really, really good public school, but even there, I think they were more worried about the sun exploding in like five billion years than they were about climate change issues. That was just something that we didn't really discuss in any detail. Um, And I just, it's just such a shame, especially when you go to a school like mine, which I think was supposed to be really good, especially in math and science as well. Just you, you almost see, even as a physicist in high school, you weren't seeing the links between what you were studying as a science to climate change and its impacts. Um, I don't imagine that even in really nice suburban areas now in the US, much has changed, let alone in more rural areas that have more limited resources um, and don't have as great access to good teaching. I was going to say another point as well. Uh, totally lost it, though. Totally lost it. Sorry. Just, just jump in whenever you have a time. Sure, sure. Uh, on my side, at McGill, it was interesting because so I was in the business school, right? And they had this, like, initiative of, like, in a lot of our classes, we have, you know, one lecture on how does this relate to climate change or... And, and, I, and when I left, they were going to introduce, mm. I don't know if they did it, a mandatory module for all of the students to take that was related to sustainability and business sustainability. But I always got the feeling when I was taking those classes that those lectures we got were so much bullshit that it was it was really like the like almost like the corporate perspective of like 
look at what we're doing. It's great. Oh, uh, like CSR not type doing of anything. initiatives. And it was just, I don't know. And I think maybe it's because some of the profs didn't care or didn't have enough education on the subject. It wasn't always the case. But some of them I was really not convinced about. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know what went wrong with it. I was going to say that you reminded me of my point where my suggestion was going to be maybe we don't just need a single class about the impacts of climate change to teach everyone that they can have a role to play whatever career option they want to go down, but maybe that it needs to be tailored to specific courses that they know they want to take later on in life. But now we reach the issue much like you felt you had in yours where maybe some people weren't as knowledgeable in it to make you clearly see the trajectory or to clearly sell it to you. Um, So that's interesting just to think about how even places that are beginning to do that, it's still very surface level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's, it's so interesting because I feel like the, the whole like exclusion of climate change in the, in the school curriculum has to do with job opportunities that are job opportunities that are out there. So what makes money at the end of the day is like oil, gas, all those things which are, I feel like until now, at least we're not the best industries in touch with nature. So it seemed like like it was a normal narrative to have throughout the school years that nature is just a hard science, we'll just study it as something external to us. And I think mm-hmm. as we see as we see business resp- responsibility in- increasing and kind of maybe looking back to the different experiences that you guys had at school, mostly on the corporate perspective, we could see like, as you guys said, like an inclusion of these for like different subjects and having a more like uh, informative discussion around it. But I feel like at the end of the day, you go to school to get a job, right? I feel like that's that's the mentality. And I feel like it was like that because we never saw, we never saw nature as like a way that you could you could actually do something and generate money from it. That's, I think that's the, oh, sorry. that's the yeah. I think you do go to school to get a job, but part of that is also going to learn a special set of skills. And mm-hmm. for me, in my experience, as soon as I was introduced to the concept of sustainability when I was a sophomore, all of a sudden mm-hmm. I began asking myself, how do I actually apply the skills that I'm paying to learn now in college to that fight? And so I think that you can still reach, even if you're not able to reach people who say, oh, I'm here to study this to get a job, you can definitely reach a good amount of people who are like, I'm here for the skill set or the love of the subject. And now that I've been introduced to this concept, even as loosely, just hearing someone mention the word like in passing, um, that was enough for me to be able to say, oh, I think that that's how I want to be applying my skills. I just don't know how yet. So there's different levels to appeal to. Some might be more successful than others, but that might just be a numbers game of, oh, you can get a lot of people on board because people who are already going to school just specifically for different skill sets might automatically say, oh, that's an interesting concept and that's how I want to put those skills to use versus people who say, I know that I want to be X, Y, Z thing. You might get less numbers from someone in that track. But it, it's still, as long as you're gaining numbers at the end of the day, I think it's either option is good. Mm, that's so interesting. Like, I think, I think that's super interesting because I feel like the perspective that you have about the skill set really depends on the educational opportunities that are out there for you. Because mm. I remember it was like two years ago, um, like um, a couple of students and, and I, we uh, implemented a compost program in um in a in a high school in the in the outskirts of Antananarivo in Madagascar, and sensitizing and like kind of bringing students at that particular school about the importance of compost, it was so hard. And we were like, yeah, no, like we're, this is not going to be useful. Like I want to be, I want to be an engineer. I want to be a doctor. Like for them, it was something that that they really didn't see a valuable skill set evolve from actually caring about nature um, in that sense. So I feel like definitely implementing it at younger levels um, and bringing more more sensitivity about the topic at an earlier age is definitely super important. I think it was a little different than that, where it was for me, where it was more like, 
it wasn't so much being taught a specific thing and saying, ooh, I want to apply physics to that. It was just hearing the broad concept of sustainability to me that sounded fascinating because mm -hmm. I had been on this trajectory where growing up, I had been very good at numbers. And so all of my family was pushing me to pursue more um, math or science-based roles. And so I went from being really good at math uh, to then saying, you know what, this is too theoretical. I feel like I need to apply it somehow. I need it grounded in the real world. And then I heard about physics and I was like, okay, let me sign up for this class. When I was doing physics, I was really happy for a period of time until all of a sudden it again felt like it was getting a little esoteric and it wasn't hitting real world impact. And so again, I started steering my course towards what sorts of ways are there to apply physics. And I can honestly say that even as a plant lover, if someone had introduced me to the concept of composting, I wouldn't have seen how to apply my physics skill set to that or why it was specifically relevant. But instead, just hearing someone, I don't remember if it was a friend or a professor in one lab one time just mentioned the concept of sustainability. And I was like, oh okay, that's broad enough that it feels like they could use this skill set that I have. So it's somehow giving people educational opportunities that are broad enough for them to see the relevance to them, for them to find their own relevance in the concept, I want to say. Just to kind of add to that, because I, I think that is kind of like the key point I was almost trying to make before, but you put it a lot more eloquently. Nice. Um, but but I think like one one difference maybe between individuals is like I feel like when you heard about the sustainability, it's kind of like something that kind of set within you and you kind of knew knew that was something. But I feel like with a lot of other people, you it's not that they disagree with like the idea of sustainability, it's just they kind of hear it but then don't feel kind of the need to act on it or maybe don't understand. And I think sometimes to solve a problem is just constantly having the communication of it. Sure. So for example, what I almost imagine is like in a company is what is having that narrative or finding a way to, for employees to have that narrative. So you might have a, people that work in sustainability, but for everyone else, um, I think what could be quite cool um, in the future or hopefully near future is just every month or every like second Friday, you could almost have a sustainability discussion or people just trying to understand like from their position, what can they do to support someone in sustainability or to just educate themselves on sustainability. Um, yeah. Because as we kind of said, there's like this continuous variable, right? Just constantly improving and understanding. And I almost want to say like, from what we've spoken today, a lot of it's been kind of about like projects and the whole economy as a whole, but those are big problems. And I think kind of taking a whole step back, but just individually, it's kind of like, actually, how can I continue to learn, continue to understand what, what yes. I can do? And not yes. feel too overwhelmed with everything I'm looking at right now, because because um, initially I thought we're we're climbing Kilimanjaro, but now it's Mount Everest all of a sudden. Mm. Um, so it's just getting bigger and bigger. So basically, a sustainability symposium—that's the vibe we're going for. We've we've got somewhere. Yeah, just to bring just to bring classics into that. But yeah, I'm pretty good. I think we covered a lot of what I was thinking about. Nice. nice. <laughs> if you guys have any other burning <laughs> yeah. thoughts. No, I feel like we could probably keep going forever. I know. I feel like this has been the most education I've had this week, to be honest. Um, oh. Learned more today than anywhere else. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like there's so many things to touch upon there. Like, mm. And I, I feel like we could just keep adding bits to it because it's just kind of like, the prob not that the problem grows, but the discussion just grows and grows because um, there's so many facets to it. Yeah. And I think as we explore more topics as well, like we'll be able to still explore those different facets just in a new angle as well. So that'll be really interesting. Yeah, yeah I think what, one thing I've learned is write down my, my, my points I want to make. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even that didn't time, save like, me. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, I'll, I'll have to do that. And it links back to that. And I'm just like, yeah. when is my moment to shine? It's like, uh, what was it again? We're going to look like that <laughs> one gift set on uh, on Messenger where it's that guy where he has like his whole thing mapped out like a conspiracy theory board. Like, I think that that's what our conversations would look like if they were actually mapped out fully. Yeah. 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 All over the place, but an artwork. Yeah. But yeah. all leading to a very good converging point. Holistic all around approach. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And that's it, folks. Thank you if you made it this far to the end of the episode. We hope that you enjoyed our intersectional insights and wisdom on this topic. 
If you liked what you heard, please stay tuned. We will be releasing more episodes soon. Thank you and goodbye.